What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern, and this is part two of the Beekeeping Trilogy. If you missed part one, I'd recommend going back and listening to the interview with Jeremy Campbell. If you're only here to learn about urban beekeeping, then you are here on the correct episode. So in this interview, we will be speaking with Sadie Brown, who is both an urban beekeeper and a bee educator in Boston, Massachusetts. She founded the Boston Area Beekeepers Association, which is a nonprofit that has awesome programs like a bee school and an annual tour day hive bike ride that she created out there, um, which is a good way to just kind of get the community together, riding bikes and interacting with bees and apiaries in the city. Without further ado, here is Urban Beekeeper. Sadie, welcome to the show. Hi. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and specifically a little bit more about the Boston Area Beekeepers Association that you started and kind of what your your goal is with that? Sure. Uh, So my name is Sadie Brown and I have been beekeeping for five years now and I got started through mentorship from a man named Jean-Claude, and he was from France. That is and... a great name. That is, like, the <laughs> coolest name that you can have. <laughs> yeah, he well, he's a really cool guy, and he had been keeping bees and farming in the Boston area for close to 20 years when I met him in 2011, uh, and I attended a Northeast Organic Farming Association winter conference. Uh, we call it NOFA, and every New England state has... Uh, has a NOFA. Mm -hmm. So I attended that conference and just happened to see an urban beekeeping workshop being offered. And so why were you at this conference in the first place? So I've done environmental and garden-based education for a number of years. And so that was what had really brought me to the conference. I was already interested in urban agriculture Okay, and I had composting worms in my basement and I aspired to someday have maybe chickens or a goat and have in the city <laughs> maybe not in the city but um chickens in the city maybe but my yeah. life's trajectory right yeah, I'll start yeah. with worms i can have worms in my apartment um i also i grew up in vermont mostly and so before i was born my my mother kept bees and she got my dad into it she met my dad and then got him into it and i have very early memories of the honey they didn't really let me near the hives and they stopped beekeeping when I was about five or six. So it's very, very early memories. Yeah. But I like to think I have beekeeping in my blood. Yeah, for sure. Got some honey um, in your veins. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I met Jean-Claude through this workshop and just sort of serendipitously went. And he lived in the same neighborhood of Boston that I was currently living in. And I had never thought that I could keep bees in the city. And then at the end of this half-hour workshop, realized maybe I could. And it, I spent a year doing research and reading and thinking about it. And it took meeting another student of his, someone who had taken a different workshop from him in January of 2011. So I took the workshop in 2010. So in January 2011, I met this other student of Jean-Claude's and she had already ordered her bees and she was getting ready to keep them. And she encouraged me to do it. She said, you got to do it this year. Here's a lady to get them from. We can help each other out. And... Yeah, neither of us will really know what we're doing, but we'll have Jean-Claude and we'll have each other and we should do it this year and you should yeah, do it. Yeah, And I did. And I don't think I would have ordered them if I hadn't run into this other newbie who wanted to have someone else to... to yeah, God, it's so nice to have somebody else around you for, you know, the moral support. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that having both Jean-Claude and 
her name is Angela Roll, and she currently has about 40 hives on Western Mass now, but she used to be in Boston. And together, we and a couple others got really excited about educating each other about beekeeping and being this network, forming this network that really wanted to provide resources to others that were getting into the hobby. And so it really started in 2011 where that summer we had the first tour to hives and it's this annual biking beehive visiting event where I'm so excited to hear about because I saw this on your website and I was like, that sounds awesome. I bet it's awesome. I can't wait to hear about this. It is. It's grown. We had our fifth annual this year. It's grown from 30 participants to we capped it at 120 because what we do is we bike, most of us, 90% of us bike from apiary to apiary or beehive to beehive in a different neighborhood of Boston every year. And we have usually four to five different stops and beekeepers will either open their hive or talk about a different aspect of beekeeping like queen rearing or, you know, why the social structure of the colony is so interesting. And, um, we, yeah, we focus on a different neighborhood of Boston every year and it's, really fun and most of the people who attend are new to beekeeping or had never thought about being beekeepers and they're really into bicycling yeah totally or they just think it would be a fun thing to do in the summer and it is and then there's a, also a portion of the riders that are already beekeepers yeah. and so it's this mix of participants and it's all ages we had a family friendly route this year um so yeah it's grown from a very simple ride to now we have t-shirts and we have usually four different routes, uh, different groups that, because you can't bike 120 people all at once to then see the hive at once doesn't make sense. So we split people into groups and have a great organizing committee that that works on that. So anyway, that was the first summer that I was beekeeping. Can I ask you a quick question? Which is how do you feel that having uh, the tour to hive has impacted your kind of recruiting ability around that time for people into the Boston area beekeepers? Yeah, we get a lot of interested people. I can speak just this year. We had a college student from Wellesley or Wesleyan. So we had a college student this year attend the tour, and she's starting a beekeeping club at her school. That's so cool. After the tour, we have this communal lunch, this picnic lunch, and she came up to me and said, was there any beekeeper that maybe I could shadow or apprentice to get to learn more this summer? I'm living at home in the Boston area, and then I'll be going back to school and I'd really love to learn as much as I can this summer. So I connected her with some beekeepers at our teaching apiary at Boston nature center and she'll be shadowing them. And I really feel like we're carrying the torch forward because Jean-Claude, uh, two years ago left, he returned to France. He's now beekeeping in the French Alps. A little jealous. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So he really was quite a mentor to a lot of us in the area. And so even those of us who have a little less experience are trying to draw in those beekeepers that have more experience, but maybe wouldn't on their own be leading workshops or teaching for sure. Um, and, and encouraging them to do that because it's really important knowledge to pass down and it's hard to learn from books and blogs. Those things exist and we try to provide as much as we can on our website. Uh, but you won't get as much as you will just doing a hive dive and looking at <laughs> a hive dive. Really- <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, 
I think there's like such a good business lesson there for people, which, you know, I know is not why you're doing it. The reason that you're doing it is because you want to educate people, which I guess is business lesson. Number one is you need to do things for the right reasons, but as well, it's so important to try to think outside the box and do something fun and unique for people that you don't necessarily expect a lot back. Um, but the, and that might not connect directly with, um, whatever your, your career is or your hobby is or whatever it is to say, Hey, let's all go do this awesome bike ride. What an amazing idea. And what a good way to bring new people to beekeeping and to get new interest and education out there about beekeeping, you know? Yeah. So it's a lot, it's, it's a lot of fun and I've helped do it, but it, it, never, it wasn't my, you know, Jean-Claude was from France. So the tour de, tour de France, tour de hives. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and there's actually, definitely. there's a tour de hives in Portland, Oregon, I believe. Oregon is also doing a tour de hives, and I've heard of tour de coops for chickens, and there's others out there too. Um, we, yeah, we have a lot of fun with it. We get so local cool. artists to print T-shirts, and we really think down to the detail too. So we source all of our food is that we provide is organic, and we print. We give out T-shirts that are locally printed, and they're printed on organic cotton T-shirts because we're really trying to think how can we help the bees. Right. So yeah. it's, it's about having a fun event for people, but it's also about being bee friendly. Yeah. So Sadie, I have to tell you, you impressed me so much when I was reading over your little bio on the Bay Area Beekeepers, uh, Bay Area, sorry, I'm in the Bay Area, the Boston <laughs> Beekeepers Association mm-hmm. site. Because in your thing, it says, uh, started the, you know, you started the beekeeping association that now has turned into the Boston area beekeepers association in 2011. And then in parentheses, it said the same year that she started beekeeping. I'm just like, who does that? (laughs) Who starts like a citywide amazing beekeeping educational program the year that they start beekeeping? I mean, that takes like a lot of balls to be honest. That's just so awesome. Well, there are a lot, again, there are a lot of experienced beekeepers in the area that I feel like are just kind of hiding out. And I've taken it upon myself to tap them and invite them to come, whether it's coming to a meeting and speaking or helping teach our B school. Uh, I really enjoy meeting new people and education is something that I'm experienced in. So uh, it almost helped that I was new to beekeeping to say, hey, will you come? And I really want to learn this from you. And I bet others would want to learn too. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's been quite a ride and I'm still learning. And that's the thing about beekeeping is the more you learn, it's almost the less, you know, there's still a lot not known about. You just said verbatim what, uh, Jeremy, the other gentleman that I interviewed about beekeeping said, he said those exact words every day. The more that I learn, the less I realize I know about bees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so why don't we dive into some of the education about okay. bees? Cause uh, we didn't sure. cover too much of that with Jeremy and, uh, you sound like the perfect person for it and kind of specifically on the urban front. So I have a lot of questions that I'm sure are going to sound like really dumb questions to you. So bear with me. So first of all, are bees in an urban environment as healthy as bees in a, um, like suburban or countryside environment? They are. In fact, bees in an urban environment may be healthier than bees in a rural or suburban environment. So bees in a rural environment are more likely to be exposed to agricultural pesticides, which have really been wreaking havoc on bee populations. And bees in suburban areas are faced with individual domestic 
pesticide users. Um, and I would say urban and suburban bees benefit from the biodiversity of trees and plants and gardens and there are lots of flowering plants throughout the growing season in most urban areas yeah. that have anything from street trees here in Boston. We have a lot of linden street trees and in vacant lots or in any area with poor soils that has been left to, to its own devices. Uh, black locust is a tree that grows quite commonly there. And linden and black locust provide a huge amount of nectar to the bees. And then we've got Japanese knotweed, which gardeners and native advocates, native plant advocates really hate Japanese knotweed, but it provides a wonderful late fall forage for the bees. Mm -hmm. So, and then I'm thinking in Boston anyway, we have the Arboretum, we have a number of different parks and I mean, essentially the Arboretum is you know, a tree museum. And so yeah. there's always something flowering there for the bees. So well, it's funny you bring up uh, that I never really thought of before that an urban and a suburban environment, uh, like flora wise is going to provide almost a more, uh, a, a better representation and replication of what things would have looked like for these bees if we weren't here at all in terms of the biodiversity versus you go out into agriculture land and you just have one single crop growing for miles and miles and miles, you know, and right. that, that bee only has cabbage in front of it and nothing else. And what is it going to do? Right. You know? Yeah. Monocultures aren't good for bees. Um, I think the almonds, right? So bees have to be shipped in and about 90% of the commercial hives in the United States are shipped in. Uh, to pollinate the almonds for just a couple weeks in February, I believe it is, in the early spring months. And then they're shipped to the cranberries here in Massachusetts or the blueberries up in Maine. And it's stressful on the bees. I mean, the bees, beekeeping, you know, is a part of commercial agriculture. And so I am a hobby beekeeper. I don't think any beekeeper in an urban area has thousands of hives. So it's a different reality. There are many different types of beekeepers and there's lots to learn from all of us. Yeah. So, um, anyway, yeah. So what do uh, I guess, uh, to the question of like how healthy or good is it for these bees in an urban environment? What is it yeah. that bees use to get back to the hive to get back to their queen? Is that smell or is that like some sort of sonar sense? Yeah. So bees communicate in a number of different ways. So they communicate by pheromones by scent, right? So each queen has a unique scent and her workers know that scent. And if it's spread throughout the colony and if something happens to her, if she dies or if the beekeeper goes in and, you know, crushes her within a matter of minutes to hours, the bees recognize that change and will change their behavior as a result. I mean, they will raise a new queen if they still have an egg to do that. The only difference between a queen bee and worker bees in the hive is a more nutritious diet makes a queen uh, and the size of the cell that she's raised in enables her reproductive system to develop fully. So, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So as long as there's just an egg right there that would have made a worker, they can go ahead and kind of turn that egg into a queen yeah. bee egg? An egg or a larva that's up to three days old. Okay. Mm -hmm. Royal jelly is what's fed to a queen larva her whole development, whereas the worker bees and the drones 
the male bees get fed um, a less nutritious diet after day three of being larva. Okay. So when they get but, closer, I imagine they use the pheromones. If they're further away, is there something that they need to use, like a homing pigeon or something, in order to get back, you know, to yeah. a decent proximity to the hive? So they, so bees communicate by pheromones. They also communicate by dance. Uh, so if they find a really good nectar patch or don't we all? Patch. That sounds so odd. Like that's just so great. <laughs> yeah, it that. is great. So they'll come back to the colony and they'll dance on the comb and they'll do a little waggle dance, and that corresponds with the direction and distance that the food source uh, that they found was in. And they actually. When bees swarm, and we'll probably want to get into this if we're talking about urban beekeeping, so bees reproduce in two ways. Uh, the queen lays eggs, and when the bees fill up whatever cavity they're in, whether that is a hollow tree, as they would in the wild, or you know, one of the lynx droth hives, which is your typical square hive that the beekeeper stacks boxes on top of, mm-hmm. um, if the beekeeper isn't careful... Uh, and doesn't stack those boxes at the right rate that the flow of nectar is happening at, the bees will fill up that space and think, okay, we're we're done here. It's time to divide and conquer. The workers will prepare a few new queen cells, and they'll actually move an egg in there and raise new queens. And before those new queens hatch, the old queen and half the workers will take off and they will swarm. And swarming is a natural behavior. And bees actually are really not at all dangerous in a swarm. It's a scary thing for someone who doesn't know bees to see or hear. And I can understand that. They're loud and they're (laughs) flying everywhere. And then they cluster on a tree limb or I've seen them on fire hydrants and car doors, wherever they happen to decide to go. They really like yellow. I, I believe that for sure. I've seen them on a yellow fire hydrant, a yellow car yellow sign so they do like yellow (laughs) but anyway wherever the queen decides to land uh they stay there for a matter of hours to days and they've gorged themselves on honey they have no home to protect so if you see a cluster of bees like this i've actually stuck my bare hand into one and didn't get stung i don't expect the public to want to do that (laughs) what made you decide to do that in the first place (laughs) just to see how it felt they would be gentle yeah and i thought what would that feel like there are, what would that be like? It felt like fuzzy little villi or something like a little, I don't know. It was very neat. It was cool. Yeah. Um, but right. So they don't, they don't have a home to protect. They've gorged themselves on honey. They're looking for a new home, but those bees, while they wait, the scout bees, cause the bees have a hierarchy of number of different jobs in the colony and the scout bees are going out trying to find a new home and they come back and they dance to communicate the size of the cavity, the direction the entrance is in, how high up it is, all of this information. And they have a dance-off, right? So they have a dance-off to decide where they're going to live. These just sound cooler and cooler every second. They solve all their problems in just the right ways. That's great. So if you see one of these clusters, don't be fooled by, by hornets or wasps' nests, which are those papery gray uh, orbs. That Those are not honeybees. Um... But if you get in touch with your local beekeepers association, if you see an actual cluster of little fuzzy insects that are honeybees, a beekeeper would be happy to come and take that away. That's a hundred dollar bill with wings right yeah, there because yeah. that queen and her colony are ready to build and grow. Yeah, so and some beekeepers do even remove wasps and hornets' nests. So I would recommend before calling your pesticide company, 
call try to find your local beekeepers association. Okay. Instead. So what what does one need to become an urban beekeeper? Like, can you live in an apartment? Do you need to have t- access to the roof? Do you need to have a small house? Like, what what would you need if you lived in in Boston? You would need a good flyway. So the bees establish a flight pattern when they come and go from their hive, and they like to go up and away. And they're going to fly from their entrance out and away. And you can encourage them to fly up if you put sort of a fence or some sort of barrier within a couple feet of their entrance. And then they will go up. And they won't come back down. They will go up and away. So that's something to consider if you're an urban beekeeper. You want your bees not flying into your neighbor's yard at eye level. But so not a lot. So you need like maybe what, six feet clearance or something. And then they'll kind of start to go up and away. Yes. And there are actually laws. A lot of cities are now putting into effect urban beekeeping laws. So Boston passed Article 89 almost two years ago, a year and a half ago. And so there are a series of laws for what you can and can't do to keep bees in Boston. So there's currently a limit of two hives per, uh, per lot, per residence. And there are laws, specific laws for rooftop beekeeping and beekeeping in the yard. And there are certain setbacks from your neighbors or from the, the sidewalk. And there, I'm trying to think what else. So there are, yeah, and not every city has them. Some are just considered legal de facto because they aren't illegal. Yeah. Um, other cities interpret if bees aren't mentioned in the code, then they're considered illegal. So you may want to check into your local laws to make sure you're adhering to those and you just know what they are. Um, and as far as what you need and what the bees need, you don't need a lot of space. Rooftops are a great place to keep bees, especially if the roofs next to you are the same level. And bees do need a water source. So I recommend putting out a little dish with some stones or sticks, something so that if the bees fall into the water, they can cling to it and get out. But, um, Better, better yeah, so, a dish you put up. Yeah. I was just going to ask. So if you had, if you had like a patio, would that likely also even be enough space to. Mm-hmm. It could be enough space for sure. I mean, they will. So they are attracted to the smell of honey and, and sweet things, especially in the fall when there's not as much nectar. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to be wanting to have a lot of deck parties or, you know, your neighbor has a lot of little deck parties and you want to put your bees on your deck, you want to be cognizant of your, you know, the immediate surroundings around the hive. Cause yeah, they yeah. might be attracted, but. Don't yeah, start a hive right next door to like Krispy Kreme donuts or they're just all <laughs> flying right in that place. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. So what are the other concerns? Are, I mean, are there any like dangers or concerns that someone should have on the negative end if they were to want to try to get started with, with urban beekeeping? Well, I always say it's a good idea to know if you're allergic to bees or not when you're a beekeeper. And you can actually become allergic as you are exposed increasingly to the bee venom, or it can work in the opposite direction. You can become less sensitive to yeah, their stings, and each person is different. So just knowing that about yourself and any of your family members. Um, because for the most part, bees aren't, honeybees die if they sting. So the only people that are really going to be stinging are anybody who's ripping off their roof and tearing through. And as a beekeeper for the last five years, I've only been stung less than a dozen times. So it's not 
you're going to get stung if you're a beekeeper, but not all the time would be what I would say. And if you're careful, it only happens when you accidentally kill a bee. And then they release, again, alarm pheromone, some more, more scents that they're communicating with. And rightfully so, they get a little defensive. So, As an urban beekeeper, do you have to wear the whole entire beekeeping getup? Or I, do you get away with a little more slick of an outfit? So I choose to wear a veil and gloves. And I actually have a veil, so the hooded screen thing. Uh, they get stuck in my hair. I have really curly, frizzy hair. And they just, even if they're just flying by, they get stuck. And that's not fun. Yeah. So that's really why I wear the veil. I used to not wear gloves. And then I did get stung on the hand. And just the swelling. I swell a lot. So... Yeah, I just, I would rather wear gloves. I know a lot of urban beekeepers who don't wear the gloves. It's harder to work with the gloves. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'd so, say the veil is a good piece of protective equipment. But How many hives do, do you have? I currently, I have two hives in my yard, and then I have an observation hive in our bedroom. So, wait, wait, wait. All right. So, you can do indoor <laughs> beekeeping? I didn't even realize that was a thing. So, yeah, so a lot of museums actually will have these. The Museum of Science has what's called an observation hive, and it is just a couple of frames of bees, so much, much smaller than the hives you'd see outside. Uh, but it's still a full colony. There's a queen. There are a bunch of workers. They can be all seen because there's a glass panel on either side, so you can see everything that's going on. And then there's a little tube that goes out the window in, in the case of our observation hive. So for their takeoff, that's, that's a way that they can do their takeoff is a tube that leads to the window. Yep. Man, yep. They that's just awesome. walk down the tube and then take off and come back. And so they really are as wild as any beehive outdoors is. They just live inside. So they overwinter here in new England, overwintering bees is this big challenge and they actually do really well. I don't get honey from them. That's not the point for the observation hive, Yeah, but they're they're pretty neat. Do the indoor bees produce any less honey than the outdoor bees? Only by a factor of how there are less of them. Okay. So for is the that just because the hive is smaller? Right. Yeah. There's so in a hive outside right now. I have twenty to thirty frames in each hive, and indoors I have three frames. Okay. So when you think, and a frame is like. Think of it like a notepad, sort of. And so the bees, it's a comb. So each frame is a comb that has two sides in which they store nectar and pollen. They make the nectar into honey in those cells, and they also raise brood or baby bees in those cells. Okay, so this sounds like such an awesome option to me, uh, but for our clumsier listeners out there, let's say you put one of these up in your bedroom and you're like walking to get yourself a glass of water in the middle of the night and you just knock the entire thing over. Are you now going to like get stung to death because you, you know, broke your beehive in your room? Yeah, you don't want to knock it over. Um, but there are safety precautions when installing them that make them safe to have inside. And if, if any bees happen to somehow get out, which... I guess it has happened to me once because I was trying to block them in because I was cleaning some equipment outside. I didn't want them to get into. And I ended up making the tube ajar. And so they all, they were confused. They wanted to get back home and they couldn't get back home. So they just glommed onto the window. They are attracted to light. 
Yeah. So they didn't, we didn't get stung as a result of it, but it was a little bit of a cleanup operation. Um, but it was my fault, right? Like I, anyway, so, <laughs> so museums have these, and then I'm actually on the board of an organization called Classroom Hives. And there's a man here in Cambridge named Jeff Murray, who has been perfecting this design of observation hives so that you can manipulate them indoors without having to suit up and bring them outside. And he's put them in a couple classrooms and there's teachers that have had these in their classrooms for years and they use them as a teaching tool. You can learn, you know, we talk, we've already talked about dance and smells, so you can learn chemistry and biology and dance from the bees. You can also learn math because of the hexagonal shape of the cell and calculating volume of how much honey they can store in a given size colony. Um, you really can teach probably any, I would say any subject with, with bees as a teaching tool. And it's one of the only animals that you can have in its natural setting in a classroom. So sure, you can have maybe like a snake or a frog or a turtle, but you're taking it and you're putting it in this little cage, essentially. Bees are used to living in confined spaces. Yeah. This is their colony. They're going to create their own thing. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, it's, it's great for observation. Yeah. Um, so how much honey can you expect to get out of your indoor operation? The, the three, if I wanted to take honey from them, which I don't, but if I wanted to, I don't know. That's I, because it's warmer in the winter, um, they don't go into their same period of dormancy that they would outside. So a colony outside in an area that gets cold enough, so below 50 degrees, the bees will cluster together and not move a lot. They'll vibrate their muscles to stay warm, and they will actually keep their colony 60 to 90 degrees, depending on if you're on the outside of this ball of bees or on the inside. And they huddle that way all through the winter, and that's why they collect nectar and make honey they're doing it for themselves to get through that period where there are no flowers for them to collect nectar they need that energy so inside those bees are more active they can tell it's cold out so they don't go outside i was gonna say like do they get totally thrown off like they're like oh it's still summertime and they fly outside and they're just like oh my god it's snowing what is happening thankfully they stop themselves before they take off they can tell that it's chilly out there um but i do have to supplementally feed them for a bit of those months where they otherwise would have collected enough honey. Sometimes they collect enough honey nectar to make honey to get themselves through, but um, sometimes I have to supplement them. So just because of how small the hive is, they're not really producing enough honey for you to take any. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend getting an observation hive for for a jar of honey that you might be able to take from them from it. Yeah. Um, but and they're a great indicator of when the flow is happening. So I can look at my hive and go, wow, something is in bloom. I better go outside and put another level on my laying straw hives before they swarm. Because I've got this barometer inside that I'm watching. It can happen like that once you're, you know, again, one tree. So once the lindens go, you better be ready with another box or they are going to fill that up in a day or two and then think they have no more room. That's the trick of beekeeping is you can keep tricking them into, 
nope, you still have more. Suddenly you have more and more space. Dang, that's interesting. So that's the reason for the indoor uh, or the observation hive. It's a great reason to have one as a beekeeper. I'm also just fascinated by them as social insects. Yeah. Um, Trying to learn and, new dance moves, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can say it. Yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So... If somebody lives in an urban environment like yourself or myself, what would be like your number one piece of advice or where should they get started? And also, if you could even um, maybe give us a few sites, like in addition to your own, that I'll put links on my website too, um, that are good resources. I would recommend as a first step to try to find your local beekeepers association or just local beekeepers in your area. So connecting with others has been really instrumental in my success as a beekeeper and as a journey of learning. Uh, I feel like the, as a bee, you, you're going to have a ton of questions and sometimes it's helpful to connect with someone else who may also have a lot of questions. Together you can find the answers, but in a lot of areas there are established beekeeping associations that can get you answers as well. And that have really interesting speakers come to their meetings and events and opportunities to get involved before you even get a hive yourself. That's one thing I'd recommend too, is if you can get a little experience and do some learning before you get your hive and have all of the questions. You're still going to have questions when you get your hive, but definitely connect with other beekeepers in your area. And that, that is key. Sadie, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It was really fun talking with you.